When I was a freshman in college, I was given an assignment by my art history professor to, to draw somebody that I knew very well. And the job was to actually draw them from head to toe, a clothes, I might add, to draw them as best we could. I selected my girlfriend, Lola, and asked if she wouldn't mind standing there as I got out my sketch pad and I carefully, scrupulously filled in the details and sketched out what I frankly thought was a pretty good likeness. I mean, it wasn't photographic, but it was pretty good, at least in my estimation. I turned it in. Much to my shock, I got the assignment back a few days later with the grade marked in red, C- minus at the top of the paper. And I was just flabbergasted. Uh, I just could not understand what I had done wrong, why it had not gotten a better grade. So I went to the teacher, the professor, after the next class, and I said, what gives? I mean, what's wrong with my drawing? And the teacher or professor just simply looked at it and took out his own red pen again, and he he, uh, circled three places on the drawing, and then I wrote in a little caption next to each one, head underdeveloped, neck too long, feet too large. And uh, that was the end of the conversation. Well, just a few days later, I'm walking across campus with my girlfriend Lola, and we happen to run into exactly this same professor. He says, oh, hello, Meyer. And then he stops, and he looks uh, Lola up and down, and then he looks over at me, and he says, make that an A-, minus, Meyer. <laughs> now I made that completely up. I, that never happened. <laughs> But I tell you this little fiction uh, as a way of introducing what is, I think, a very real topic that's worth our thinking about this morning. And that is um, an examination of how it is we tend to perceive people, Uh, how it is we tend to, to draw and then respond to people in our mind. I think that most of the time, most of us are actually extraordinarily accurate in our understanding of other people's liabilities, the parts of them that are underdeveloped, too long, too large, right? And that's not to say we don't make mistakes. We do. Every one of us, I can say this for myself, have have made mistakes in estimation of people. And then when you learn the backstory of what's really going on, uh, you get more data points, you hear other testimonies, you begin to realize the picture is larger, it's, it's different than the one that, sh- that you had. And uh, so we're, we have to approach people with that kind of humility. But I think it is true that most of us as we go along in life do develop the capacity to discern uh, parts and pieces of other people's lives that are not perfect, that, that really need work. And so when somebody in our workplace or our home life or our school circle or our neighborhood um, doesn't seem willing to pull their fair share or is um, not keeping their word or it seems like their head, their thinking is underdeveloped, we notice that. When uh, somebody's list of excuses or their complaints is just too long or when somebody's anger or ego or appetites seems just seem just too large. We, we spot this. Um, it makes an impression on us, and it, it forms uh, a certain resistance in us to those people. Um, and you could probably think of people you know in some environment of your life 
um, and you could draw a verbal picture of that kind of person for the rest of us. And if we spent time with that person, we gave them a good look up and down, we might also grade them an A- minus in terms of their depiction. They've nailed accurately, depicted uh, truly some of the significant liabilities. And because of this, um, we have this way of, of responding to people that have got significant liabilities. Uh, we may avoid them. Uh, you know, we see that person coming down the hallway and we find a reason to turn right or left and get out of their way. Uh, we may criticize them. Uh, we may just, they may just bring up in us this, enough of a resistance that we actually kind of spew a bit, maybe behind their back, uh, expressing our displeasure in those negative qualities in them. Or we may actually backlash at them, and we may hit them hard, expressing our frustration with them, uh, upbraiding them for where they're, they're, they're falling short. And all of us, I think, could probably go through our lives and find stories where we've had these kinds of reactions uh, to people. This is sort of the, the human way of doing things. And this, I think, is why uh, it's fairly likely that if you and I had been with Jesus on this particular day that gets recorded in John chapter 1, if we had had the opportunity to encounter some of these people that Jesus is encountering, uh, it is very, very possible that that we would have had some strong counsel for him concerning these individuals he was considering for his, uh, his discipleship team, his first four uh, spots on the discipleship team. Uh, and knowing, I think, what we're told right here in this text about these people, I mean, if we really look carefully at the detail here, and what we know from a larger portrait we get from these same individuals in other parts of the gospel stories, I can imagine one of us maybe mustering up the boldness to say, hang on here, second rabbi. Uh, I don't mean any disrespect here, but, but are you really thinking carefully through the choices you're making here? I mean, now, as I understand it, you're trying to establish a crack team of leaders to, to help uh, this revolution you have, this kingdom revolution you have in mind, go forward. Is that right? You're trying to get a really good team together. And Jesus would say, that's right. I'm, I'm trying to put together the right team uh, to work alongside of me in the work of the gospel. And I can see one of us responding at that point and say, okay then, Jesus, if that's your intention, let me recommend strongly that you pass on this guy, Andrew. You, you don't want Andrew. I mean, just look at him. He has been out in the wilderness with John the baptizer. You know, he's been out there eating locusts and wild honey. I mean, he's, I mean, 10 minutes ago, he was all in with John the Baptist. He was sure that the baptizer was the, the guy that was going to lead the, the great changes in society. Now he's jumped ship and he's coming with you. Do you not see something in this, Jesus? Andrew is one of those restless, perpetual seekers he, he, he's always jumping on to the new thing, and then he goes on to the next thing. He's got the attention span and the loyalty of a flea, Jesus. You just asked him what he was looking for. He had no idea what he was looking for. His answer to you was, where are you staying? He, he, he was interested that there might be free room and board with you. He's going to go with you for as long as it works, Jesus, and then he is jumping to somebody else. You don't need Andrew on your team, Jesus. He's a restless seeker. Oh, no, Jesus, look the other way. There's Simon, son of John, coming. You don't want to get tangled up with him. 
No, no, listen, I knew some guys that knew that guy. They worked on his fishing crew. They say he is a blowhard. He is arrogant. He talks all the time. And it's always about himself. In fact, I, I knew some of these guys, that they were fishing with him, and they said they were tired of listening to all of his mouth, and, and, and they threatened to quit, and he, and he just went ape on them. He pulled out a knife, Simon did. He threatened to cut off one of the ears of one of these guys just for disagreeing with him. Honestly, Rabbi, this guy would be poison for team morale, and he's frankly just talk. I mean, I know you wouldn't know that from looking at him. He's big and strong. He looks like a castle. But I'm telling you that as soon as pressure comes on this guy, as soon as, as, soon as the waves start hitting him hard, that castle is going to prove to be made of sand. You don't want Simon, Jesus. You don't need him. Oh, Jesus, I don't get it. Now you're interested in Philip? Oh, come on, Jesus. He's the worst of Andrew and Simon combined. He's a restless seeker with an attitude. I mean, haven't you caught your limit of guys from Bethsaida? Move on. You don't, you don't want Philip either. No, not Nathaniel too. What have you lost your mind here, Jesus? You know how uppity people like that guy are? He's from Cana, that wealthy district. They're better than everybody else. And maybe you didn't hear what he just said. I mean, I I just heard him over, over him talking with these guys over here, and he heard where you were from. And his response was, Nazareth? That hick town? Can anything good come from there? Do you honestly want a guy like that on your team, Jesus? You're going to spend the next several years taking this kind of abuse from him. Are you seriously interested in a skeptic and a sarcastic guy like Nathaniel in your circle of disciples. I could imagine, based on our ability to spot the liabilities that are there in other people, raising issues with these four choices that Jesus first makes. Because these are the kinds of things that we sometimes do say or think, I know I have, about other people in our circle. We see the faults, uh, the shortcomings, the failings. We avoid them, these people. We criticize these people. We lash out at these people. And the very humanity of that response, because it's not just us. I mean, this is the way of the world, right? I mean, this is how people deal with the rubs they feel in so many relationships. Because of the, the humanity of that kind of response, The divinity of the response of Jesus uh, is really worth paying attention to. It's because these four guys are, at least from appearance standpoint, so different, difficult, uh, dangerous, or dumb, uh, to somebody's point of view, that the response of Jesus to them is is really remarkably rare. And and I want to think about that with you this morning and see if there's something to be learned here. I noticed something really fascinating as I was going through this uh, text this week and, and studying it. That's what preachers do, you know. They, they sort of get a microscope over a text and they try and look for patterns. They try and look for the meaning that might be there that we miss from 
having read the story so often. And as I was looking in at, the, um, at this passage of Scripture, what popped out at me was the number of times in which the gospel writer refers to Jesus' sight. His sight. Did you notice this as we were reading this earlier? We're told, for example, in John 1, verse 38, that turning around, Jesus saw uh, Andrew following. Um, it's as if Jesus is going along, he's focused on where he's going, but almost with eyes in the back of his head, he senses there's somebody else with, of, of, that has an interest or a need, and he turns around and he sees Andrew following. He, he will do this many times in, in his ministry. He'll be touched in the crowd by a, a woman, a huge thronging crowd, and he will turn around and notice her too. Uh, he, will be, he will be at a, um, a well side in uh, Sychar, and he will, when everybody else is clamoring about going into town and getting lunch, he will see a person coming down the street at a distance. He'll say, guys, you head on ahead, and I'm going to wait right here. Um, and so he sees Andrew, as we're told in verse 38. Then jump down to verse 42. It's reported that Jesus looked at Simon and the, and the implication here is that he sort of bored into him. He looked closely at him, gave him his full and undivided attention, and said, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, we're told later in verse 43 that Jesus visibly found Philip. Um, he was looking for him. Uh, he, there's a sense in which Jesus is searching the environment and, and, and looking for something or for someone, and he finds Philip and says to him, follow me. We're reminded down in verse 48 that it was when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching that he said, and then when Nathanael asks him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, because I saw you. I saw you under the fig tree. And the sense is, somehow in the seeing of Jesus is a deep knowing. Is a deep knowing. Preceding every decisive intervention in the lives of each of these four people and many other people we could trace through the Gospels is mention of the vision of Jesus. I don't think this is accidental. I, I think the Gospel writers are trying to tell us something, to help us learn something from the way Jesus sees people that is immensely significant and would benefit us to understand and to integrate ourselves. If I could reduce the message that I think God's Word is trying to give us here to its simplest form, it's this. Jesus appreciates people. Uh, he really appreciates people. Um, now, by appreciation, I don't mean that he feels a sentimental fondness for people. He feels that, obviously, for lots of people. Uh, but even for, the, for people that he did not feel fondness for, the Pharisees, for example, he appreciates them in the sense that I'm talking about. What I mean is that Jesus looks at human beings and he sees the whole picture of who they are. He sees all of the detail, all of the contradictions and the complexity of people. He doesn't just see their liabilities, he also sees their possibilities. He doesn't just see the defects that sinful, broken people are, he also sees the assets to God's kingdom that those people could become if grace enfolded them and worked within them uh, more fully. In other words, 
Jesus loves people expectantly. Uh, you know, there's a church down in, in Austin, Texas called Gateway Church. And their motto is, no perfect people allowed. No perfect people allowed. And they have, they have sort of two, two key statements they made. They say, Jesus loves you just the way you are, number one. Number two, and too much to leave you just the way you are. And, and this, is, he, this is the kind of appreciation, the kind of expectant love with which Jesus comes um, at people. Um, the question I want to ask you this morning to sit with, with me is, what if you and I could love expectantly, more expectantly, like we see Jesus model for us here? Um, what, what might we practically start doing differently if our vision of the imperfect people around us became more like Christ's? And I want to suggest three possible behavior changes. Uh, three potential changes we might try if we want to live after the model of Jesus. How many of you would like to live your life after the model of Jesus? Um, and, and, okay, so th- here's just some th- three practical ways maybe that we, we start to do that. First, rather than avoiding, uh, avoiding them, perhaps we can try to invite one or two difficult, different, dangerous, or dumb people into our life. Um, instead of just working around them, what if we went the exact opposite direction and invited one or two of those people into a deeper relationship uh, with us? Uh, That is what we see Jesus doing here with Andrew and Philip, I think. Uh, He appreciates that what makes them difficult, restless people, and they are, um, is because they're searching for something. They're yearning for something more than they have. And they may be expressing it in in unproductive, abrasive ways. And I think every one of us knows people like this. You know, some of the most abrasive and difficult people we have in life are searching for something or bearing some hidden pain. I remember a math teacher I had in in high school was one of these incredibly difficult guys. His name was Ed Barlow. And and all of us made fun of him and we avoided him and, and criticized him. And until one day, uh, the vice principal heard some of us mocking him, called us in the office, opened up the yearbook. We looked at the yearbook, and there's this clean, this Mr. Barlow, by the way, looked like Beethoven. He had wild hair and was kind of blustery. And he points us to a picture on the page. It's the most clean-cut guy you've ever seen. This guy is the basketball coach of the high school team, and it's Ed Barlow. And we say, what happened? And the principal says, that picture was taken just three months before the phone call came in that Ed Barlow's wife and children had been killed in a car accident. And I never treated Mr. Barlow the same way again. And I, and I began to build a relationship with him because there was more to the story than I understood. And I would never have gotten to it if I'd not opened myself up to hearing more, to learning more, to getting closer to that story. There are people like that in your workplace, in your home, in your school, in your church. You need to know their story. Don't avoid them. Bring them closer to you. Uh, Find out what makes them so restless. Do not turn your back on these people. Jesus did not turn his back on these people. He appreciated their plight and what an asset for the kingdom they might yet become if somebody said to them, come with me. Come with me. Let's come and see together. Let's come and see.
So be that person. Think of somebody you know that strikes you as one of those difficult ones and consider inviting uh, them into your life. Secondly, to love people expectantly as Christ does, we need to spend less energy criticizing flaws in the rough-cut characters around us and instead explicitly name people's potential. Explicitly name people's potential. You notice how Jesus did that with Simon. Nate touched on it a moment ago. You are Simon, son of John, he says. That's who you are today. But you will be called Cephas, which means rocky. The rock. That's what I'm calling you. That's your potential. You may, you may be sort of a, a struggling, wavering, blowhard Simon today. You will be Cephas. That's where your life is going. And, and, and if we did this with some of the imperfect people around us, if we declared the potential for their life, I wonder what difference it would make over time. Name a virtue you see in a child. Even if there's only a grain of it, a glimmer of it right now, name that potential. Call it out of them and see what happens. Uh, find something that you can applaud in somebody you find it difficult to like. And, and, and tell that person about that. Uh, commend somebody for a small job well done. And, and maybe that's the only thing you can commend them for, is that they did this little thing right. Well, focus on that thing. And, and name the potential that's there, that that might become more than it is, uh, even now. Instead of trying to, to pick out and pluck up all the weeds in the people that are close to you, that rub you wrong, that are difficult in your life, try watering the tiny bloom of virtue that is in them, or the potential you see in them. The way God waters it in you, and just see if God does something with that over time. Finally, thirdly, get ready to meet a Nathaniel this week. Nathaniel will be that guy that spots the, uh, the Nazareth in your life. Uh, he will be that guy that, that, that mocks something in you that is messy, that isn't perfect, and just jabs you there in that particular place. You know, you, you think about it. It had to have been so tempting for Jesus um, to lash back at Nathaniel for this whole Nazareth interchange. Uh, you know, uh, you imagine the things Jesus could have said. You know, Nazareth? You think I'm from Nazareth? Try the glories of heaven. You know which town you're going to be living in? Let me give you a hand. It's an eternal hibachi. I mean, Jesus could have been so cruel and unkind in his response to, to Nathaniel. But instead of reacting defensively, he just focuses on the diamond beneath the rough. And Jesus said of him instead, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And I just love this. I mean, he, he celebrates the, the, the attitude of honesty in Nathaniel, even if that attitude is abrasive, even if, if it's not um, yet conditioned by grace. Do the same with the difficult people in your life this week. When they irritate you, find the virtue in them. Find the virtue in the other and affirm it, even if it's unpolished. And again, see what God does with this. There are two reasons to do these three things that I can think of. First, because that is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a disciple yourself. You imitate the one you're trying to follow. 
he did these things, we imitate him in these ways. That's the first reason. There's a second reason to imitate Jesus in his treatment of difficult people. It's because of the effect. It's because of the effect it has. It makes them appreciate. It makes them appreciate. Now, now, I don't necessarily mean makes them appreciate you or appreciate others more fully, though that could be a byproduct. What I really mean is that Jesus' appreciation for people literally appreciates them, as in the financial sense. It increases their value uh, in, in a significant way. The people that Jesus appreciated became what he said they were. Uh, Andrew was a restless, searching man, but Jesus saw in him the curious passion needed to grow the church. And Andrew ultimately led Simon uh, Peter, his brother, to Christ. Simon Peter was a gritty, prideful person. That's just the reality. But Jesus saw in him the potential strength needed to guide the disciples through the tremendous times of persecution that were ahead. And Peter became the rock. He became just what Jesus said, the rock of the early church. Philip was a cautious, tentative guy, but Jesus saw in him the gentle affability that could build bridges with people and expand uh, the circle of disciples. And it's true. Philip led, his, uh, led Nathaniel to Christ. Philip reached the Ethiopian eunuch on the road and had a conversation with him that led him to Christ. And many scholars believe it was because of that Ethiopian eunuch that the gospel went to Africa. There are 100 million believers in Africa today. Through Philip. Through the work of Philip. Nathaniel was a sarcastic, skeptical guy, but Jesus saw in him the sort of daring honesty that is needed in the new community that is the church. We have to tell each other the truth. We try and do it in love. But he saw in him that quality, and Nathaniel eventually followed too. I don't know how it is in your life, uh, but I know that I just would be desperately worse than I even am today if it weren't for the people that appreciated me along the way. You know? I mean, I'm bad. I, I still got lots to do and lots of growing to do. I'd be worse if it weren't for those people that have invested in me along the way. I think of Mike, the youth worker that found me when I was this really surly, uh, upset, confused, messed up teenager. And, uh, and he saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself. And, and he nurtured it uh, up and, and, and out. I think of how many of those people have come along uh, my path in life and appreciated me, who loved me expectantly uh, when I wouldn't have known how to do that for myself, um, when others wouldn't have expected much to come out of it. What about in your life? Who, who have been those people in your life? And, and do you remember today that God is that person in your life? Um, you know, he sees it all. He sees everything about every one of us. He loves you. He loves you desperately, just the way you are, and so much that he won't leave you, just the way you are. Never stop trying to love other people the way Christ loves you. So, invite one or two difficult people into your life, all right? F start that this week. Explicitly name their potential, what they could become with his grace. And thirdly, find the virtue in them. Even if it's buried beneath a lot of rudeness and roughness, 
and affirm it and keep doing it. And if you do, who knows? Maybe God will give you a share in shaping one of the great disciples, one of the great advancers of the kingdom. Maybe he'll give you a chance to shape someone like you or like me.